Hello, Ollie. How's everybody doing today? Good. All right. Well, welcome to the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute's fourth and final winter 2019 speaker series event. Today's speaker is Michael Omi, and his talk is entitled, Who Are You? Racial Classification and the Census. Michael Omi is the co-author of Racial Formation in the United States, a groundbreaking work that transformed how we understand the social and historical forces that give race its changing meaning over time and place. Since 1995, he's been the co-editor of the book series on Asian American history and culture at Temple University Press. From 1999 to 2008, he served as a member and chair of the Daniel E. Koshland Committee for Civic Unity at the San Francisco Foundation. Since 2002, he served on the Project Advisory Board on Race and Human Variation for the American Anthropological Association that resulted in the traveling museum exhibit, Race, Are We So Different? At Berkeley, he serves as the Associate Director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society, is a core faculty member in the Department of Ethnic Studies, and is an affiliated faculty member of Sociology and Gender and Women's Studies. Michael Omi is a recipient of UC Berkeley's Distinguished Teaching Award, an honor bestowed on only 240 Berkeley faculty members since its inception in 1959. Please join me in welcoming Michael Omi. All right, thank you. Good afternoon, folks. It's kind of this interesting mood lighting in the room. You know, I hope I, I, hope I can keep people awake uh, throughout this. Um, it's really a pleasure to be here. Nice sight, too. You know, I come down here to watch musical performances and never thought I'd be on stage. I should have brought my guitar or uh, something. Next time I will know that. Well, when Susan Hoffman, Oli's director, asked if I would speak about the census, this was last July, um, I wasn't sure how much interest uh, a talk on the census would elicit. But the census and the politics of behind it certainly have been thrust into the forefront of the news with the contentious issue about whether a citizenship question would be added to Census 2020 and the profound effect such a question would have. So first, let me just say something about the census as a whole and why it's always been important. Among other things, uh, the Constitution does require uh, an actual enumeration of the population of the United States every 10 years. And that means everybody, citizen, non-citizen, etc. It really does provide us with a form, if you will, a kind of a portrait of the nation as a whole, a kind of portrait of a national accounting, if you will, that provides a kind of collective picture of who we are as a nation. Very important is the question of political apportionment since political reapportionment is really a zero-sum game. By that I mean, and many of you know, that the House of Representatives was capped at its current number, 435, after the census uh, of 1910. Actually got put into effect about 1911, 1912. What it does is it limits the size of the House um, and in so doing transforms, as I said, a reapportionment into a zero-sum game. Whenever a state gains a House seat, another state loses a seat. And since 1850, California has generally averaged around three new House seats after each census. The other aspect of this is federal funding, federal spending. Half of federal spending is allocated on a population basis. That includes uh, Medicare, highway planning and construction, education grants, and programs like Head Start. And thus, the greater the state's undercount, the more it potentially can lose. And it was estimated, for example, in the um, 2010 census that the undercount in California cost California somewhere between $1.5 and $2 billion. So back to this citizenship question. Well, Last month, a um, federal judge, Jesse Furman, blocked the Commerce Department from adding a citizenship question on the 2020 census. And just this past Friday, the Supreme Court agreed to step in 
before the appeals court could rule on the matter, and it's put the case on an unusual fast track. Part of this is because time is of the essence. The uh, census forms are due to be printed in June of this year. So what's at stake? Well, by one government estimate, millions of people might decide not to participate in Census 2020. And who might those people be? Well, uh, this is a list that might give us some indication of this. These are people who might be affected by the addition of a citizenship question. What this is from um, uh, William Frey's uh, work is, in fact, the percentage of residents residing in non-citizen households. And as you could see among race and ethnicity, a great deal of variation here, whereas only 3% of whites reside in non-citizenship households. Um, 45% of Asians and 46% of Latinos do. And this varies according by state as well. As you see here in California, 29%, Texas, 22%. Where are there states with extremely low percentage of non-citizen Households, and this includes, for example, West Virginia at only 1%. Right. Well, Judge Furman found that the, if the question were added, Arizona, California, Florida, Illinois, New York, and Texas would risk losing seats in the House, and that several states could lose federal money. The judge also said that there were questionable motives about Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross's decision to add the question, as many of you know. Uh, Ross's original claim was that it was going to be used as data in support of the Voting Rights Act. But later it was found out, of course, that he had very early conversations in his tenure with Steve Bannon. And the point was uh, how they might uh, sort of, in, in many respects, try to disenfranchise voters in many areas or uh, at least uh, create some strain on high immigrant states. Um, Furman found that, uh, that much of Ross's original claim, quote, was not the real reason for his detention. That's Furman's quote. Well, we'll see what the Supreme Court weighs in on this as well. Could be interesting. Well, this afternoon, I want to focus on the racial and ethnic categories used by the census and hopefully spur some conversation about both their definition and their use. I'm going to go to a case here that appeared in the early 1980s to illustrate um, um, something that I got interested in back then about state definitions, how different states sort of classify by race and ethnicity. And this is the uh, Susie Guillory Phipps case in Louisiana. Now, what happened in 1977, um, Susie Guillory Phipps, who was then 43 years old, found herself in need of a birth certificate in order to process a passport application. Um, and she couldn't find a birth certificate. And she never had a passport before. This is the first time she was going to leave the country. So, in fact, she goes down to the Louisiana Bureau of Vital Records and believing all her life that she is white, imagine her surprise when a clerk at the Division of Vital Records shows that on her reissued birth certificate, she's going to be designated as black. Now, what's interesting about this, well, first I'll give you a quote from Phipps that I always loved. She said, it shocked me. I was sick for three days. I was brought up white. I married white twice. Now, at issue was, interestingly, a 1970. I want to be clear about that. I'm not talking 1790 or 1890. 1970, Louisiana state law that allowed for anyone with more than 132nd black blood to be legally defined in the state as black. And Susie Gurley Phipps was, uh, had this long generational family history in the Lake Charles area in Louisiana, and in fact, the state's genealogical investigations claimed that she was three thirty seconds black. Um, there's a longer part to the story. I won't bore you with some of that. We could talk about that later in the discussion if you want to. What was interesting about that claim, for example, was the fact that she took that case all the way to the Louisiana Supreme Court, and the court ruled that, in fact, the state could impose the definition of who is black. Uh, it was then brought to the U.S. Supreme Court. The U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear it, thereby validating Louisiana's law 
but what happened after that is, is even a, a, a longer saga um, to this case. But the point is the designation then of racial categories and the determination of racial identity is really no simple task. And over the last several centuries, it's provoked numerous debates in this country, debates about you know, natural and legal rights over who could become a citizen and indeed who could marry whom. It's worth remembering that it wasn't until 1952 that race could no longer be used to deny a person the right to become a naturalized citizen of the United States. And as most of you know, it wasn't until 1967 in the Loving decision that the Supreme Court invalidated laws which prohibited interracial marriage. And thus the racial and ethnic categories, interestingly in the United States, have historically been put to these purposes, and they've been shaped by the particular political and social agendas of different times. I'm going to show you something, a chart uh, from sociologist Ren Farley. This is a, a chart of the racial terms that have been used in um, the 20th century. And what's interesting about this is that almost every census, we got different racial and ethnic categories. You could see here that at the beginning of the century, there are very few uh, racial categories. And by the 1980s, 1990s, there are multiple um, categories of folks being added, a result of different kinds of claims making and politicking around this. There's a couple of things which are interesting about this. Uh, the three consistent racial categories throughout the 20th century was white, Chinese, and Japanese. Interesting, as labels. I mean, black was often black, Negro, it goes off into different tangents, but those are the three uh, specific categories. The other one which is of interest is that Mexicans were regarded as a category, a racial category, only once in 1930, and then taken off the census, in part because of the opposition of Mexican-Americans here in the United States, but also the Mexican government intervened. Um, at question here was whether or not Mexicans would be racialized by the state in particular. And I'll tell you what, what happened after that. Many of you may know this, that um, the citizens in the territory we took over from Mexico uh, after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 could elect to become citizens of the United States. And that put them in a very different kind of legal category uh, and, and, and resented, in fact, having them uh, being seen in the Mexican category. The other ones that are kind of curious here, just in passing, is that um, we have the term Hindu in 1930 and 1940, which was meant to capture the number of South Asians, particularly Asian Indians in the United States. But it's kind of this way in which a religious category becomes seen as a racial category as well. It's even more ironic, because the largest number of Asian Indians in the United States during that time were, in fact, Sikh and secondly, Muslim, and third, Hindu. But nonetheless, we've got this uh, Hindu uh, racial category there. Now, many of us may be familiar with um, um, something which is called the Office of Management and Budget Statistical Directive 15. The history behind this was that in um, 1977, the uh, Office of Management and Budget convened a number of federal bureaucracies uh, you know, the Veterans Bureau to, you know, uh, you know, Agriculture Department, whatever, in hopes of having consistent record-keeping with respect to racial and ethnic data. And part of this was precipitated by the passage of significant pieces of civil rights legislation. So what they wanted to do was that they noticed that different departments, different units were coding people very differently with respect to race and ethnicity. So let's have some consistent categories and definitions. That was in 1977. It was revised again in 1997, slightly. But many of these definitions uh, we inherited from this period of 77. What you should note is that these definitions, for the most part, rely on some notion of original peoples inhabiting a specific geographic area, which is always subject by the way, to a lot of anthropological debate. The other thing is that there's only one explicit racial identifier here, and that is for the term black, where a black is referred to as a person having origins in any of the black racial groups of Africa. All right? Yeah, what are the black racial groups of Africa? But there's no parallel construction. A white person is not defined as a person having origins in any of the white 
uh, racial groups, but a person having origins in the original peoples of Europe, the Middle East, or North Africa. There's other curiosities with this. The Latino, Latina category, Hispanic category, is not seen as a racial one at all. It's an ethnicity one. And in fact, it's the only ethnicity the feds are really interested in, whether one is quote-unquote Hispanic or non-Hispanic. And I'll go back over that to show you the confusion with that. Uh, The other one that's interesting is that not only do you have to be an indigenous person, a person having origins in the original peoples of North and South America, but you have to maintain tribal affiliation or community attachment. We don't require anybody else to have that as a kind of stipulation for them having that uh, significant coding on that. The other interesting one, which I'll just mention in passing, and if you want to ask a question about it later, you can, is that in 1997, the Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander category was separated from the Asian one. These used to be one category. And since 1977, we've only added uh, a new category for Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders. The result of a political debate and controversy, by the way, But um, Native Hawaiians and other Pacific Islanders constitute less than half of 1% of the population in the United States. So it's kind of interesting how these uh, definitions are being uh, utilized and defined. So originally serving to provide consistent categories for use by federal agencies, the directive has had this unintended consequence of really influencing the very discourse, the very categories of race which we use today. In many respects, they sort of constitute the uh, main food groups of American multiculturalism, if you will. Now, here are the questions. I'm going to show you, and many of you took these, um, took the census in 2010, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. These are the 2010 questions on race and ethnicity. Um, and you'll see there's two separate questions. And the regular census form only asks about 10 or 11 questions, and two of them are about race and ethnicity. First, is this person of Hispanic, Latino, or Spanish origin? Then listing various subgroups, but also a write-in box. Then next, what is this person's race? Also note this, for the census, Hispanic origins are not a race, not races, all right? And then you're supposed to come back down here, and it's white, black. You see here a number of Asian categories over this way, a number of Pacific Islander categories, and finally, the some other race category. All right? You might want to think about where you would locate yourself in this and how you would fill this out, and I'll, I'll quiz you later. Now, here's one issue that has come up with respect to this, is that sometimes these categories aren't very meaningful to the very people they purport to represent. And I'll give you an instance of this by looking at the Latinx population. In the last four censuses, it's been estimated that 40% of Hispanics, Latinos in the United States, don't fill out the form the way the federal government would like to see you fill out the form. 40% don't. What they do oftentimes is skip both these and check off some of the race and write in that they're Guatemalan. They write in that they're Peruvian and so forth because they don't understand how they were supposed to do this. How the census thought it would work is, say, if you're a dark-skinned Puerto Rican, that you would check off that you're, yes, I'm Puerto Rican and I'm black. Or you're a light-skinned Argentinian, that you would check off that you're some other Hispanic, you're Argentinian, and that you would check off white. Folks didn't get that, 40% don't. And it seems to me if 40% of the sample, of the sample people you're trying to reach don't fill it out right, something's wrong with the question. But um, that continues to plague uh, what the Census uh, Bureau wants to um, deal with that question. I'll show you this. It, This was um, a survey that was done by the Pew Research Center in 2015, uh, and its sample shows that well over two-thirds of of Hispanic adults say that being Hispanic is uh, is both a racial and ethnic, is reflective of both a racial and ethnic background, as opposed to a specific ethnic background. 
So there's overwhelming support for seeing these things as combined in ways that um, kind of elude how people uh, confront uh, the census and how the census, excuse me, deals with them. Now, what I want to emphasize is that there's a, there's a real politics to, in fact, all these categories on the census. And one interesting place to talk about that is the politics of the multiracial category. Um, because for nearly a century, the census has uh, assumed that each of us, each individual, possesses a singular monoracial identity. Whereas, uh, it's interesting, earlier census enumeration schedules, before the 20s, sort of recognized some uh, mixed-race individuals. The 1890 census lists mulatto, quadroon, and octoroon in addition to the main categories of white, black, Chinese, Japanese, and Indian. Now, what's interesting is that these racial mixed-race categories, which are based on... on on quote-unquote percentage of black blood, these mixed-race categories eventually disappeared from the census. But what remained in practice was kind of a one-drop rule of racial dissent that clearly distinguished whites as a pure category from others, um, including multiracial individuals. Uh, as late as the 1960 census, for example, census takers were instructed for persons of mixed white and non-white races report the race of the non-white parent, all right? So the default is you're white and other, you get coded as other, all right? Now, beginning, um, you know, I, well, actually, I want to mention a little sidebar on this, too. What was interesting, I was told um, that um, some, you know, multiracial people have certainly ignored census distinctions to fill in only one circle on the race that the person considers himself, herself to be, by sometimes marking two or more boxes. And since, in fact, census scanners were designed to read only one marked box, I was told that oftentimes such persons ended up as monoracial depending on which mar box they filled in darker or not lighter. So uh, you have to be really uh, consistent on how you were uh, trying to subvert the process. Beginning in the 1990s, uh, both the Association for Multi-Ethnic uh, Americans, the AMEA, and Project RACE, great acronym, stands for Reclassify All Children Equally, actively lobbied for a separate multiracial category on the census. All right? And many of this was uh, being spurred on in school districts, where uh, the reporting of school children, and particularly the uh, you know, dramatic demographic growth in the number of quote-unquote mixed-race, multiracial uh, children made some of this kind of racial keeping very problematic. Now, what's interesting is that I, I saw this debate unfold um, in some hearings in Washington, D.C. Um, it was interesting that a number, when this issue came up of having a multiracial box on the census, that many established civil rights organizations, such as the Urban League, the National Council of La Raza, Asian, Asian uh, Pacific Islanders for an Accurate Census Count, opposed the multiracial category. And to some extent, these groups feared a diminishment in their numbers and worries that a multiracial category would spur debates regarding the protected status of groups and individuals. According to various estimates, could be that maybe 75 to 90% of those who checked the black box could potentially check the multiracial one, if it were an option. Not that they would, but the potential existed. And along with a possible reduction in group numbers, many civil rights organizations argued that the existing federal civil rights laws and programs were based on these memberships in defined racial and ethnic groups, and that from the addition of a multiracial category would make it difficult to assess the salience of mixed-race identity in relationship to laws and programs. Right? What happened is after several years of intense debate, the OMB, the Office of Management and Budget, decided to do something nobody wanted to do. The advocates wanted the multiracial category. Major civil rights organizations didn't want it. What they decided to do was to allow individuals from Census 2000 on to be able to mark more than one box. 
But it, it does real interesting things for statistics. Say you're a black and Korean individual. You would get marked as part, uh, added as part of the black population of the United States and as part of the Korean population of the United States. Therefore, you know, leading to something where, in fact, we're over, you know, it doesn't round out to the kind of 100%. We'd like to see that. Um, this is how uh, some of the statistics have to be presented to show people who marked only one or one in combination of others. All right. Well, let me try to bring you up to debate, I mean to date, about where some of the census forms exist now, and then I want to make some political claims about, about the importance of looking at racial classification. Um, in 2017, actually it was in February, two years ago, the U.S. Census Bureau released the results of um, what were called the 2015 National Content Tests. And the census was conducting a lot of focus group interviews. It was um, using different samples to see how people would respond to maybe different formats with respect to race and ethnicity. They were also responding to the fact that the nation, as we all understand, has undergone profound demographic change, that there's been an increased complexity in the immigration flows to the U.S., that, in fact, many of these racial and ethnic categories were quite fluid. And, in fact, there was a lot of widespread campaigns and lobbying for changes in the questions and categories. I'll give you an example of that. In 2010, um, there was a very well-organized campaign among Iranians uh, to tell them, don't check your white, go to some other race and write down Iranian so that there would be a more precise kind of uh, statistical portrait of who Iranians were. Now, they came out with this form that's called the uh, optimal elements of that test. And I was convinced, if you asked me, like, six months, nine months ago, I thought this was going to be our next census, uh, the racial and ethnic categories that we would use for census 2020. Wrong, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> I've, been, I've been wrong a lot on this. Um, here's the interesting features of this. Among other things, it combines the Latino-Hispanic question as part of a race question. It's not two separate questions. It's collapsed into one. Okay? And they thought that would sort of minimize the ambiguity and the problematic nature about how uh, many of the Latinx population was filling out the census. Um, the other part of this, which is interesting, maybe I better use the pointer, is that for the first time, it allows more details on who is white and who is black. Because before you just check it off, but now you're able, there's some other sort of possible subgroup ones to be, you know, French or Polish. Uh, among African Americans, it's to be Jamaican or Haitian or Somali or Ethiopian. It allows you to check off some key examples, but also to write in uh, what you want to write in. And neither of those things had been available to whites or blacks uh, in previous censuses. Now, the other interesting one is the addition that's been lobbied for for 20 years of a Middle Eastern or North African category that would include people who are, you know, Iranian, Egyptian, Moroccan, and also to be able to write something in here, too, including Israeli, Iraqi. It's very interesting how this Middle Eastern category uh, was being presented. The others are pretty much like they were. So that's the part. Uh, the, the main things are allowing a much more detailed breakout of who are whites, who are blacks. Um, the combining of a Hispanic-Latino uh, question and um, the addition of a Middle Eastern category. All right? I was convinced that was it. I'll, I'll, I'll take some questions right after. And um, yeah, but as I said, I was wrong, and it looks like this is what we're going to get for 2020. Um, what it does is it creates the two questions again. So there's a question around... Um, Hispanic, Latino identity. And then, what is your race? You can mark one or more boxes and print origins. It does allow the option of printing origins, though, still, for whites and blacks. Um, this part is pretty much like it looked like for uh, Census 2010. Um, and what's gone is the Middle Eastern category, once again. 
And uh, we could talk about this. There's been some interesting politicking about the Middle Eastern category over the past 20 years, too, where some folks are uh, wanting it at certain points in time to record um, disparities or hate crimes. At other points in time, fears among parts of the Middle Eastern community that it could be used to profile them uh, for selective uh, enforcement efforts. So there's uh, always these questions that exist within that. What do we got here? I'm going to watch my time, because I do want to discuss much of this stuff with you. The point is, is that there is a definite politics to these definitions and categories. Uh, they also reveal the kind of social constructedness and the fluidity of race. And in many respects, these racial and ethnic categories can really be seen as the kind of effects of uh, political struggle uh, over their meaning and definition. And in turn, these categories uh, can have political effects in sort of setting the stage for the next round of debates about classification. This, this gets me to something I want to I wanna talk about, which is about uh, racial classification and color blindness. And, and in many respects, this is trying to get at the political meaning behind why we racially classify, the reasons we do it, and um, its significance and its impact in many respects. Now, um, I won't go into this too much. Obviously, you know, many are familiar with this, the ideology of colorblindness, that many people believe that the goals of the civil rights movement have been achieved and that racial discrimination is a thing of the past and that we are now truly a colorblind society. Um, colorblindness really denies that race or concepts of race inform our perceptions, our shapes our attitudes, and influences our individual, collective, and indeed institutional practices. And oftentimes it's being said that colorblindness is the belief that the most effective anti-racist gesture, policy, or practice is simply to ignore, ignore race. Now, um, obviously this has a, has a different tinge in the Trump era, as uh, you know, where before we used to think about coded racial politics, what what a colleague of mine on campus, Ian Haney Lopez, def defines as dog whistle politics. And it's really true that Trump has replaced a dog whistle for a bullhorn. And in many respects, um, the ex you know, explicit racist appeals have, much, have uh, much more currency now in kind of uh, normal political discourse. Well, for over the past, I would say, 20, 25 years, there's been this concerted attempt by, um, by mainly political conservatives to ban the collection of racial demographic information. And that government policies that utilize racial categories, this inclusion and exclusion, has been, has been criticized for promoting color consciousness and subverting the ideology and practice of color blindness. Many of you may recall this, that in, um, in 2003, California... Uh, had a Proposition 54, the Racial Privacy Initiative, which was um, sponsored by former University of California Regent Ward Connolly, who is the architect of the Anti-Affirmative Action 209 in this state, along with um, Michigan's uh, Proposal 2. And uh, what the um, Proposition 54 sought to do was to uh, add to the California Constitution to make it... Um, Illegal, or the state shall not classify any individual by race, ethnicity, color, or national origin in the operation of public education, public contracting, or public employment. I like this quote. This is uh, Ward Connolly believes that um, getting rid of the data is important to move us towards a colorblind society. And he wrote this argument, which was in the California state uh, voter pamphlet. He says, dare we forget the lessons of history? Classification systems were invented to keep certain groups in their place and to deny them full rights. Well, I think a problem here is that Connolly fails to make a historical dis uh, distinction on the use, the use of racial classification in the pre- and post-civil rights eras. Prior to the passage of civil rights legislation in the 1960s, it's true, census categories were utilized to really politically disenfranchise and discriminate against different 
racialized groups. From prohibitions on naturalization rights to setting quotas for the 1924 National Origins Immigration Act, many of these kinds of categories were used to circumscribe the political, social, and economic rights of specific racial minorities. But after passage of civil rights laws, many of these categories, much of the census data, was used to discern the patterns of discrimination that were being practiced by individuals, but also by businesses, by schools, by political institutions, against people of color and other marginalized groups. And in fact, data by race became absolutely critical for the enforcement of every civil rights law passed since the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And thus, the civil rights revolution, if you will, or era, marked an important shift in the use of these kinds of racial categories, from a tool to exclude specific groups, exclusion, to one to ensure inclusion and a much more um, robust representation of groups. Now that said, it still comes up much about whether or not we should simply abolish racial classification. And I would argue that we can't simply abolish forms of racial data collection in the United States because the reality is, is that without some form, some form of classification, some form of racial data, we're really unable to observe institutional patterns of inequality in the United States. The Institute of Medicine had this enormous study, Unequal Treatment, that found that even if you controlled for insurance company, uh, coverage excuse me, and ability to pay, there were stark inequalities by race in terms of prevented care, diagnostics, and treatment, no matter what the disease in question was. In one of the studies they cite, a study of 1.7 patients, blacks received major therapeutic procedures less often than whites in 37 out of 77 medical conditions. And although, another example, although uh, we passed a Fair Housing Act in 1968, which made it illegal for lenders to use race as the basis for lending decisions, it was not until we had data collection laws in the 1980s that lending patterns, home loan, home mortgage loans, could be clearly discerned. And of course, what was found is that the loan rejection rates were twice as high for blacks as they were for whites who had similar income portfolios. Now, these examples illustrate the need to maintain some form of racial classification and racial data. But I want to say this as well, that this does not mean we could ever have accurate, precise, or scientific categories. You know, it's an elusive quest to find a category that's going to be, be able to be enshrined uh, uh, forever. Racial categories and the definitions and meanings we impart to them have changed over time, but they cannot be simply dispensed with because in a racially stratified society, social concepts of race, social concepts of race matter. And, in fact, we need to examine patterns and trends uh, to be able to really inform policy, to inform how we confront these disparities. Now, that said, in the Trump era, there's a lot of dark clouds on the horizon with respect to data collection again. I want to show you an early example of this, which I don't think um, finally got passed, but there's been different attempts to do this. This is a bill um, in 2017 that was sponsored by Senator Mike Lee and Marco Rubio, and it's called the uh, Local Zoning Decisions Protection Act of 2017. And one of the things that it's explicitly prohibited, which is very interesting, is that... Um, it said that no federal funds could be used to design, build, maintain, utilize, or provide access to, federal, to a federal database of geospatial information on community racial disparities or disparities in access to affordable housing. Uh, you know, it's a little bit. Let me, let me deconstruct that a little bit. In other words, uh, what was very important to think about 
uh, housing policy was in fact the maintenance of some sort of federal database that would be able to tell you uh, where there are racial disparities in, in, in residential communities uh, or a disparate access to, in fact, people trying to secure affordable housing. All right? Now, you know what the parallel is this with? It's on climate change. You, know? you get rid of the data on climate change as if, you know, and then maybe the problem will go away. You know? And in the same token, it's saying, get rid of the data about race and housing and maybe the racial disparities will go away. What, 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 what will go away is our ability to actually see the depth, the impact, the significance of those, of those changes uh, without any form of data. I'm going to end on this quote. Um, this was from Kent Pruitt, who was the director of, of uh, Census 2000. He sent uh, me an article on the Proposition 54 debate, that racial privacy initiative. And Ken Pruitt says, I love this quote, he says, I'm happy to join Ward Connerly in welcoming a colorblind society, but I don't want to be blindfolded as it arrives. And uh, he's right. So thank you. So I take it, uh, is Matt still? Uh, Oh, Uh, I should just take some questions. It's hard actually to see in this arena, I gotta say. So I'm gonna go to the second row here. Um, yes. Um, could you comment about the citizenship? Oh, I'm sorry. Question. Someone else is bringing it. I'm sorry. Okay. Where, where, where is this person? Oh, okay. It is dark in here. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Can you comment about the citizenship question, the debate, and where you think it's headed? Yeah, so uh, were you here where I began with the citizenship question? Or I, I, I did mention the citizenship question at the beginning of my talk, particularly of uh, Justice Furman's regards to thinking that Wilbur Ross was being disingenuous about why, in fact, uh, the citizenship question was being added. Ostensibly, he said to support and make uh, data available for the, to secure the Voting Rights Act, but it really was clear from discussions with Steve Bannon and others that the ulterior motive was to try to uh, disenfranchise groups of people and that that would, have a, that would change our political landscape, in fact, to be able to do that, as well as penalize some high immigrant states that, uh, in fact, you know, the Trump administration had some grievances with. Um, where that is. So the last Friday, as I said, the Supreme Court fast-tracked the cla- uh, case, which is extremely unusual. So in other words, uh, the federal district judge Furman's decision will not go now to an appeals court. It will be heard directly by the Supreme Court. And in fact, that's because, as I mentioned, uh, the census forms are, are due to be printed in June. So that decision has to come down fairly quickly. Where is it? Uh, you know, uh, I don't, you know, I, I, I'm going to hedge my bet here. I was wrong about all these census forms. I'm, I'm not a hesitant sort of gunshot to talk about something else. But um, I worry about that. I actually think that given the current con, uh, you know, stuff of the uh, Supreme Court and some earlier remarks that uh, Neil Gorsuch and some others have made about um, uh, the ability, in this case, of, of, of Wilbur Ross to initiate these changes, um, that it, it couldn't indeed go through. It's, it's going to be an interesting thing. I think what's key here is uh, it could be fairly split. And uh, here again, I, I'm not sure how people are going to lie on that, but many people, um, uh, I know why I say that is because uh, Neil Gorsuch didn't find that uh, Wilbur Ross was being disingenuous or you know, that it wasn't proved that he had a, a darker, quote-unquote, purpose in mind in doing that. And I thought that was a flag to me that, uh, you know, if you don't believe he did it for reasons to, um, to sort of uh, disenfranchise folks, that um, that mandate or that instruction to the census may go through. Yeah, I'm sure. Is, where's the, where's the, my, oh, you want to come down here? Oh, you'll choose. Oh, all right. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you alluded to uh, the concept oh, of hypodescent. Right. Um, the legal definition of blackness being 132nd 
uh, Black Blood. So I'm wondering if maybe you might be able to comment on how the concept of hyper-descent in Latin America maybe informs this notion of uh, being Latino or Hispanic as an ethnicity versus a race? Oh, interesting. So you should have to say what, what is, what is uh, hypodescent is referring to descent rules that when you have in a status hierarchy, a higher status group and a lower status group, any intermixture assigns you to the lower status group. But you were talking about hyper-descent. Yeah, yeah so I, I seem to remember reading somewhere just this, that hyper-descent in Latin America, this notion that any small amount of whiteness confers status mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. on individuals in Latin American society, yeah. that this has somehow a relation to the whole notion of um, being Hispanic as an ethnicity mm -hmm. oh, on the census. I got it. No, I think there are two separate things. And let me comment on both. On the one hand, it's very interesting to do a comparative analysis on how racial categories are defined in other parts of the world. And certainly in Latin America, it's very interesting, given the kind of um, real hybridity, you know, the mestizo, mestizo consciousness among Latin Americans there. But also you have something else, which is a kind of, um, there is a pigmentocracy of lightness, of, of, of being moreno versus, you know, blanca. Uh, what's interesting to me is that you could be siblings from the same set of biological parents in Brazil and be assigned to two separate racial categories because, because of, of colorism in many respects. That's a kind of illustrates a different understanding of race than we have in the United States. But, I but you know, the notion about uh, white blood, you know, sort of the lightness, it's also class stuff. You know, there's an expression... Um, I believe in Brazil, but maybe other Latin American uh, communities, is that money whitens, such that class and class privileges has the ability to transform your racial location. Now, I think that's different than the Hispanic thing. Here, it was sort of defined not being seen as a racialized category. It was lobbied for, you know, the creation of a kind of Hispanic uh, category. And um, it, it was done before a real diversity among a kind of... Latino, Latina population too. I mean, there's real shifts going on with respect to this. And um, what some people didn't want about collapsing the Latino category as part of a race category was that they wanted to be able to have to discern, this is a colorism thing again, if whether or not people who were dark-skinned or, you know, uh, uh, Latinx folks were treated differently than white. Next, folks, in terms of you know everything, and that that would that might be more negligible unless you were able to record them by race as well. So I think those are two separate things. Yeah, you know, on a personal basis, for a lot of people that have had their ancestry.com or whatever, mm -hmm. they see that they're um, uh, mixed in all kinds of ways, and the census can almost force an individual to deny something unless they check it all. And, and, and also choose what they want to identify with given certain percentages. The other piece of that, just personally, is uh, Mexican-Americans Mexican are mostly mestizo anyway. They're right. indigenous and Spanish. So that whole mix creates a lot of confusion as well. A absolutely. Absolutely. It does. Let me deal with the first question. I, got an, I, I talk another thing about the genomic sciences and race, too, in which you're looking at ethnic ancestry as well as criminal forensics and, and drugs around. Uh, uh, it, I won't go into it now, but it's been very interesting. Since, you know, the, the, uh, during the uh, Clinton years, the early 2000s, when um, the uh, human genome was first mapped, there was this big claim about shows that we're all one race, that there are no racial differences. But what's been really interesting is that a short number of years after that, everybody started thinking about race and genetics as having a particular thing with susceptibility to certain diseases or being able to do uh, you know, treatment as well as ethnic ancestry. Listen, I won't go into I have colleagues uh, who are, are better equipped at this, but uh, there's a lot of problems with the ethnic ancestry testing as currently construed by 23andMe or um, Ancestry.com. It's, it's based on very limited samples of people. I mean, that could expand and get better. But before, you know, they'd give you these big swashes of who you could potentially 
be, you know? And the other thing, you know, to say you're, wow, I'm 10% Costa Rican. Question is, who's 100% Costa Rican? <laughs> so there's real problems in both the sampling and the logic behind some of that ethnic ancestry. And that's why the census is very clear. They say, we're not talking about biological, we're not talking about any of those definitions. We're talking about social concepts of race. Now, that said, um, you know, um, you can put anything you want to put. And that's because we're under self-report now. And we were, always weren't. Many of you may be old enough to remember where a census taker came to your door and looked at you and, and checked off boxes and was only supposed to ask you if, it was, if they thought ambiguously they weren't sure who you were. But now it's driven by self-report. So you can say anything. Um, you could describe yourself in any terms you want to. That's the way it goes. You know, this is all kind of confusing to me. I'm a Rodriguez. The Rodriguez family line's been in California since the 1700s. Um, I've seen the census reports in my family. (laughs) Uh Um, Spanish, mulatto, Spanish, and then for about 200 years, white. And then um, when I was... 40, I found out I'm Hispanic. The Equal Opportunity Department of Labor came to my workplace and wanted to um, interview employees at random. And so my boss said, you need to go to this interview. And I said, oh, why? Because I'm over 50? He said, I don't think so. (laughs) I said, because I'm a woman? He said, I don't think so. He said, I don't really know. You'll have to ask them. So when I went, they said, you're Hispanic. That's why you're here. And I said, well, I don't know. I don't think I've ever said I was Hispanic. I didn't ever fill out a form. My maiden name was Rodriguez. I don't even know if the company knows that. Uh, Is that okay? He said, oh, they would be in violation if they didn't list you as Hispanic. So now I'm Hispanic. And it's okay. I don't have to think about this every 10 years when the (laughs) census comes out. But looking at those things, you know, I still don't really know how to fill them out. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, I, I think... The second example, I thought, I may, that might be easier. Oh, that one that... But you didn't like that one. No, no. Well, which, you mean the one that, uh, which one are you talking about here? Let's go get back up. The latest one? Yeah, that one, that one I think I could fill out easier. Oh, okay. But okay. I don't know. Okay. My, the only thing, I th- thank you, I think your lecture is great. The only thing I don't agree with you is I really don't think any of this matters. Oh, well, okay. We disagree on that. Yes. Oh, hello, great. Hello. Finally got you. I, I just wanted to state that I think it's patently absurd for them to put the, those print, for example, German, Irish, blah, blah, blah. My daughter has five different European ethnicities in her. We're Americans. We're all a mixture. We're not, we're mutts. We're not, you know, and, and so what is she supposed to put? You can't print in all that different stuff. And same with me. I have three. Yeah. And they're not, you know, they don't, it says print. And, and, uh, and, and, and people make choices, yeah. you know? I understand, I but I think it's stupid. Yeah. I think it's not taking into consideration what we are. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, let me tell you this, that uh, this is another study that I think uh, Jeffrey Passell or someone did, which is that whatever these examples are have an enormous effect on what people put down. Because they, uh, this, this was derived from, I think, the American Community Survey, where it gave you examples, and then every time there were different examples. Oh, no, it was the long form of the census, which we don't have anymore. It would have examples of your uh, specific ethnicity, and, you know, one time they dropped off French, and the French population in the United States fell by 20%. <laughs> and it didn't. But people didn't see French there and thought, oh, my God, that's right. My grandmother was five French, and write stuff on. So, yeah, even the examples themselves um, have an undue influence on how people identify. But you're going to get that, and you're going to get, like, siblings do different things, you know? They're going to put different things down, and people do put different things down on the census. Um, and, and some people who are trying to capture this, I, have, I had a graduate student. She was a Bangladeshi, extremely dark skin, grew up in Texas. She showed me a birth certificate. It says she's white. And she said that um, when she was born, you know, the nurse or whatever who was filling out the form with her parents didn't know how to capture who they were, so she just thought, white. 
Yeah. Uh, wondering what, if any, effect does this data, racial data, have impact on the reapportionment? Uh, the, the, this data does not explicitly, it is, it is, but it does deal with the reapportionment debate with respect to the addition of a citizenship question, whether or not a citizenship question would have a kind of depressing effect on the number of, of non-citizen households responding to the question, and that would reflect on the reapportionment. That's why Judge Furman thought there was like five or six states that um, would be affected in a reapportionment debate should that question be added. But it's not directly uh, based on the uh, kind of uh, race stuff. That said, there's all this stuff going on, many of you are familiar with, at the state level uh, around voter suppression and particularly the ways in which both past, you know, I mean, histories of gerrymandering, but also uh, contemporary stuff has, has led to a significant, um, you, know, you know, taking people off the rolls, uh, many of whom are people of color. What's been very interesting, for example, is uh, places like Florida that passed a law about, you know, about whether or not ex convicts, you know, ex-prisoners can in fact vote or not. Those are extremely important kinds of cases about how to uh, expand voter rolls. But what we're faced with for the most part is a kind of um, a legacy of voter uh, suppression policies. And those have more or less uh, have racial meaning. And if we didn't have racial data, we wouldn't be able to figure that out about who is being suppressed. Oh, yeah. Um, how... How can you do any kind of studies year to year with this constant change of these categories? How can you have any accuracy and comparison? That's an extremely important question because that's what... Um, yeah, there was a person here in demography that hit me up and I said, so how can I do long-term studies if what I mean by this category changes over historical time? But that's a fact, you know, that you have to grapple with, that the, the categories themselves may change. I mean, some have a, a relative permanence to them, too. Historically, about who is African-American or black in the United States is one. There's mainly the kind of addition of new groups, uh, whereas these, uh, somebody who's Iranian may have been coded as white for a number of years, all of a sudden becomes Middle Eastern or... Are, so there's kinds of more complexity in addition to that. But it's true. It's, it, it does disrupt, to some extent, the kind of um, time series data. But I actually think, um, for the most part, it, it, um, it doesn't. I mean, in early censuses as well, in 19th century, think about this. We understood people like Germans to be a race. We understood the French to be a race. Uh, you know, it wasn't consolidated on, uh, in a kind of homogeneous category of whiteness. You know, think about the Irish. Think about the kind of of of, uh, of discrimination and uh, just outright hostility directed to the Irish at an earlier point, which then leads to thinking about well, what happened? And we have historians like Nola Ignatieff who wrote a book called "How the Irish Became White," as a way to talk about. Uh, that kind of historical transformation and its broader meaning. Are there penalties for lying on the census form, for claiming to be a citizen, claiming to be a citizen, for example, when one isn't? Ah, are the penalties claim to be a citizen where uh, not? Not that I know. No. Uh, although the fear is, is that it would have an overall chilling effect on people filling out the census in the first place. So, but you're not fined for uh, directly uh, lying on the census, I don't believe. Um, I had a, a friend of mine who was a, um, a community-based organizer in Chicago who is, in fact, white. And uh, every census he puts down, he's black, you know, to <laughs> increase the number of blacks uh, in the <laughs> Chicago metropolitan area. So, uh, you know, maybe they could get them at some point, but... Um, no, I think the, the, the point is, is that people won't fill it out. Now, the Census Bureau, um, the Office of Management and Budget, the Commerce Department, is very clear about that we would never use this data for, like, ice raids or to figure out, you know. But who believes that, you know? 
is, is one thing. And I got to say, the same person, Ken Pruitt, when he became director for Census 2000, uh, had to issue uh, an apology on behalf of the Census Bureau for something it did 50 years ago, which was the use of census data to figure out where Japanese Americans were in order to uh, evacuate and incarcerate them during World War II. And he said, we, that was a blot. We shouldn't have done that. that. That data should never have been released. But it was, and I'm thinking, so what's to prevent anybody else from using this data in a kind of uh, malicious way? Yeah. Oh, we got a cut? All right. Thank you so much. Thank you.